Hello, my name is Thomas Berezovsky, and I'm the director of Two Journeys Ministry. And I want to thank you for making Two Journeys a part of your day. On this podcast, we ran into some technical difficulties that you may notice throughout the podcast. And I want to apologize in advance and hope that it does not distract too much from this great content. Thank you. Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode nine in the book of John titled, The Son Does Nothing Without the Father, where we discuss John chapter five, verses one through 23. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we are moving through the Gospel of John, and when we come to chapter five, we get what I think is one of Jesus's deepest discourses in the entire Gospel of John, and possibly all the Gospels. Can you give us a brief overview of what we're gonna see here in verses one through 23? Yeah, so everything in John's Gospel points toward one end, and that is the reader, we who are reading, uh, will come to a, a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And by having that saving faith in Christ, our sins will be forgiven, we'll spend eternity with Him. Uh, part of the joy of heaven will, will be eternal discovery of who Jesus is. We'll be spending eternity in heaven understanding the deity and humanity of Christ, this chapter goes a long way to helping us understand what we can know and should know now, but it's still, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, like seeing through a, a mirror dimly. You know, we don't have a perfect view, but we have enough. Uh, and this chapter gives us a big piece in understanding the incarnation. What does it mean that Jesus is God in the flesh and the Trinity as well, the relationship between the Father and the Son. So we're going to see certain things that are really quite remarkable. And really the whole chapter, chapter 5, we're only going to get time to get through 23 verses. But it's going to be amazing. We're going to see how um, Jesus really in his attitude and his demeanor toward the Father uh, points the way for all of us being in total submission to the Father in doing only what the Father wants us to do. Now, it's going to be much different than what the Father wanted Jesus to do, but it's the same idea. I would do nothing apart from what the Father wants me to do. That's a goal in sanctification. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to read verses 1 through 23. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So we're going to go back to verse 1, Andy, and as the Apostle John sets up this miracle for us, he situates it in this place called Bethesda, what do we know about this place? Well, one of the one of the things that happens in John's Gospel gives us a sense of Jesus' life, his public ministry, is a cycle of feasts or festivals that, that occur. And this is how most New Testament scholars think that Jesus uh, ministered for three years, because there's a... Now, we don't know which of the feasts that it's referring to here, but we get a, a sense of the rhythm of Jesus' life in a very short ministry. It wasn't a long time. There's just these cycles of festivals that Jesus goes through. Three times a year, the Jews had to assemble in Jerusalem, and Jesus is a law-abiding abiding Jew was among them, and he went up there, and he inevitably uh, would get into conversations or do miracles or do things that would, you know, further his ministry and the cause of the gospel. Now, we find some architectural and some geographical things that we don't know a lot about, but it just has to do with the lay of the land there and the uh, the temple area, and so there is this uh, particular place called uh, Bethesda, uh, this um, by the, it's called the, the Sheep Gate, so there are various gates uh, to come in and out of the city of Jerusalem, and there uh, we have this uh, architectural image or this idea of, of these covered colonnades. And, and along with it comes this, uh, I don't know what to even call it, uh, maybe a myth, uh, some kind of understanding that uh, maybe it was a legend or uh, some kind of a hope that these invalids had as they gathered around the pool concerning an angel stirring the water, and we'll get into talking about that, but that's kind of setting the scene. How does this you know, scene just picture human neediness and just the complete inability to do anything on our own apart from the grace of God? Well, I love how you put it that way, and so I believe, as I know you do, Joel, that all of Jesus' miracles literally happened. They were physical realities. People were literally physically paralyzed. They were physically you know, lepers with their, you know, with the disease ravaging their bodies. Uh, they were physically blind or physically deaf, and Jesus would touch them or speak to them or do something, and they would be physically made well. But I also believe that these miracles were like living parables or spiritual metaphors for the real work that Jesus came to do. The ultimate work was spiritual. Now, I would say also the ultimate work is physical as well because we believe in the resurrection of the body. And Jesus' miracles were all signs of a future blessing that's coming on all of us in which we are going to be raised in glorious resurrection bodies like Jesus' resurrection body. So the healings are all just signs, but signs tell you you're not there yet. You're driving along the highway, you see a sign, it means you're not in the city that the sign says it's X number of miles to Raleigh or to New York or Philadelphia, so you're still far away from it. So the signs tell us there's a reality that's going to come, but it's not there yet. So that's the way I tend to think of these signs. They are living parables, as you said, of Christ's ability and human inability. Without Jesus, we have no hope. Yeah. 
Why do you think Jesus asks him, do you wish to get well? I mean, isn't that just, well, of course he wants to get well. But what is Jesus getting to? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? You know, some people, you could argue they don't want to get well. You know, some, some people milk their sicknesses and people pander to them and they, um, they have a privileged status. Uh, maybe they're lazy or there's some aspect. And I'm not saying they don't have genuine maladies. But I think this question does stand over every sick person saying, do you really want to get well? Um, and so all of us have to have to deal with that to some degree. And that is, you know, are we willing to to take on the burdens of health? And that in- involves a certain accountability, certain responsibility. If somebody's completely able-bodied and they're strong, it's expected that they're going to work. And, G- and Paul says in another place, if they will not work, then they won't eat. But then there are others who are just physically incapable of doing so, and they are fit objects of our mercy and compassion and benevolence. And so I just have to, we have to make something of the question, do you wish to get well? It's not a given that the man wanted to get well. It's also interesting that Jesus, like he does with Bartimaeus, asks, what do you want me to do for you? So frequently Jesus begins these kind of encounters by saying you need to speak your need. So that could be some of it here is what do you want? What are you here for? And, you know, are you here really to get well? So what does Jesus use to heal this man? What kind of power is this? Let's go over the the legend, the reason why the guy and all the other invalids were there. Apparently, according to the story, um, there there would be an angel that would come from time to time and would stir the waters. So if you saw the stirring of the waters, the waters rippled, you had to be the first into the pool. So it's really harrowing if you think about it. You know, you're there and you've got to be constantly vigilant. We don't know how frequently this stirring of the waters ever happened or how effective it was. We don't have any backstory here. It just kind of fits the account. And some of the text evidence uh, fills that in for us, although it's not in all of the ancient manuscripts. But that's the story. And uh, so here's this man, and he's got a real problem, a genuine problem. Uh, let's imagine that the, the healing was real, but it only happened very periodically and only to the first person to get in the water. But this guy's paralyzed. So he's as close as he can be. I don't think it counts if you're already in the water. I guess you have to get into the water, so the legend goes. And um, if you're not the first one in, you're out of luck. And so this guy's got a problem because, as he says, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. And so he's got a significant problem. Now I want to stop and say something about this as a metaphor for salvation. As we were talking about a second ago, all, all of uh, Jesus' uh, physical healings can also be seen from a spiritual point of view. As we'll, He'll make it very clear in John 9 when he likens blindness to a spiritual condition, not just a physical one. He just openly says it. So here, let's, let's say, for example, there were a combination of human free will and Jesus' atoning blood. And the combination is what saved you, as honestly many people in evangelicalism believe. So it's a, it's a joint effort. Jesus provides the cleansing blood, but you have to get yourself into the pool by your free will. The problem is that you're paralyzed. As Martin Luther wrote, the bondage of the will, the free will is a slave. You're never going to get into the pool. You're not going to move. So if 99% of the journey is God and 1% is you, you'll never get saved. So this, this inability of the man to get himself into the healing, cleansing pool is a picture of the bereftness of that kind of free will theology, 
which says, you know, Jesus provides the salvation shop or store. It's all free, but you have to get yourself in there. And so this man and his inability, he's speaking for all of those people saying, I can't get there. I can't get into the pool. Anyway, your question is, how then does he heal him? He says, do you wish to get well? And he says, I have no one to help me to get into the water when the water stirred. And he just says, get up, pick up your mat and go home. So somewhere in between there, the man's healed. What does he use to heal him? The same thing as a royal official's son or, or the Syrophoenician woman. He just thinks it, I guess. Um, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. I don't know that he even touches the man. He just wills that the man be healed and he's healed. Just going along, this is a metaphor for salvation. And I'm not saying this man was finally saved because I think there are some disturbing things that he does later in this account. Yeah, we need to talk about that. But, um, but it reminds me of in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, The God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's like when God wants something to live, he says live. That's it. I mean, God just wants like... something to be light, he says light. When he wants to raise a person up, they're just raised. It's, 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 um, it's incredible. It. We're going to see it with Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, come forth. It's about the same thing here. Get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And in, this, in the command, there is the ability to obey it. So that's, to me, the sovereignty of God and salvation. He says, live, and you live. Um, so that's it. But let's talk about this man. Um, I don't know if you had any other thoughts about that, but yeah. Well, yeah, let's, I'll uh, describe what he does and then give me your thoughts. So, uh, yeah. you know, he... Uh, he well, it's the Sabbath on that day, of course, right. and uh, you know we've commented multiple times how uh, it seems like a disproportionate amount of miracles Jesus does on the Sabbath. He was especially busy on the Sabbath, yeah, it seems and, like. and for good reason. You know, good day to do a miracle. Uh, but obviously, this, uh, this this disturbs the uh, the the Jewish authorities, and so they question him. And his answer, he seems to then like kind of deflect responsibility. Uh, back to to Jesus, or who he doesn't doesn't actually know who he is. But what do you make of his response? Yeah, it's very important, and I think it's really very sad. This whole thing's tragic. I mean, it's the the the, the Jewish religious police are tragic, and the man is tragic. I don't see salvation either on either side of that equation. First of all, let's talk about these uh, religious authorities. I mean, how blind can you be? And we see this again and again. It is just not true that seeing is believing. It's really the other way around. Believing is seeing. If you believe, you'll see the greatness. And, um, and so believers looking at the miracle miracles are even more strengthened in their faith and they keep developing, etc. Now, I'm not saying that God can't use miracles to bring someone from death to life. He does. But what I am saying here is just because you physically saw a miracle doesn't make you a believer. And we see that with both the man and the royal officials. I mean, the, not the royal officials. The, the, you see it both with the man and the Jewish religious leaders. What do they see there? They don't see a man miraculously healed giving testimony to the greatness of God. They see a, a, a Sabbath mat carrier. I mean, the, 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 the pettiness of their legalism blinds them to the greatness of the reality. And we're going to see this in John 9 where a man born blind says, no, this is incredible. No one has ever healed a man born blind and you don't know where this man comes from how can you be this blind and we see the same thing here in john 5 they see him as a religious rule breaker so how did it work i don't really understand how it worked the basic commandment is you shall not work on the sabbath but what the pharisees what the jewish religious leaders did is they defined what work was so meticulously that you know they they allowed for certain things it would be like sabbath day journeys you're allowed to go so far but no further all these different things uh, jesus points out that they are willing to take a, a uh, an animal that's fallen to the pit on the sabbath and get him out 
So there's all kinds of things they allow and things they disallow. They're in charge. Jesus actually says, no, 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 I'm in charge. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'll tell you how it's going to work. But fundamentally, they define what work is. And so this man is carrying his mat, and that was defined as work. So he's breaking the Sabbath. So they come after him, and they're going to bring the penalties of the temple regulations down on him. But as you said, the man deflects. He said, I'm just doing what I was told. The man who healed me, and he does say he's healing. The man who, who, who miraculously healed me um, told me to um, pick up my mat and walk. And he said, well, who is it? And he didn't know who he was. Um, and so we see that, that you know, he has no knowledge of Jesus, so he can't fault him uh, for that at that point. But what happens is Jesus circles back, like he does with the man born blind in John 9, where he comes back for a second conversation. So Jesus finds him at the temple and gives him a warning. Behold, you are well again, physically. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, that's an incredible statement. It really is. He's saying, because it says the man who was healed uh, had, had, was, um, you know, had been, and been paralyzed for, how long was he there? 38 years. 38 years. So he's, he was there for 38 years. Something worse than 38 years of paralysis. Well, what is that? It's hell. It's hell. It's the eternal fire of hell. There is nothing, there is no circumstance on earth that is worse than hell. We've talked about this before. Can you think of the most horrific circumstance, some concentration camp, having some dread disease that's destroying your body in agony, etc., and you offer to anyone who's burning in the lake of fire a trip back to that earthly condition, all of them would take it. In, in, they would not hesitate. So Jesus says, Behold, you are well physically. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And then what does the man do? He, yeah, he actually goes back to the authorities and points out exactly who it was. So he hands Jesus over. Yeah. So there's zero evidence. Now, this is a very important point. First of all, there is no evidence whatsoever that the man that Jesus healed had any faith at all. None. So it is wrong to say, like faith healers sometimes do, that Jesus has to have faith, but with faith, you know, it's a... No. Jesus can heal you whether you have faith or not. So... You know, another account in the gospel says that he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Well, that's just his choice. He could have done miracles there if they had zero faith. He can do anything he wants. And this man's a clear example that just because Jesus healed you didn't mean you had faith. And again, just because Jesus healed you didn't mean you're going to heaven. So I want to ask this question, and maybe there's no answer that we can see on this side of heaven, but why then does Jesus stop and heal him? You know, if he... He probably stored up more judgment for himself by living a life well and, uh, you know, turning Jesus in and probably going out and living a sinful life than he would have just being paralyzed and constrained. Like, why, why does Jesus stop and heal him? And I guess that's the same question we ask of why does God pour so many common grace blessings on unbelievers? I think so. And I think it's also, for me, it's an interpretive clue because in Matthew chapter 4, um, it seems like massive, you know, crowds, huge populations were going out to Jesus and he healed them all. We should not think, based on John 5, that they're all converted thereby. You know, I don't, he didn't delve into their souls like he does with the Samaritan woman. He doesn't talk about their particular sins. He doesn't, doesn't um, challenge them with their ethics like John the Baptist does with soldiers or, or tax collectors or others. He just heals them. And so they go home healed. And that's just a, a, a big display of the greatness of Christ. Now, again, there's just things we don't know. 
There could be other people who knew this guy who were converted as a result of his healing. Could be the people watched it. He, they, he was there. It's probably like a little tight-knit community of people who sat by that pool. Now, whatever happened to that guy? Jesus healed him, really. And then some of those people would come to faith. But we should keep in mind, I think, generally, the number of elect people, the number of people actually converted is percentage-wise small. So we have this huge, vast populations getting physically healed, but only a small number of them are genuinely um, being saved. So I guess my answer to your question is, why did Jesus heal uh, this man? He did it out of compassion for the man, as a picture of common grace blessings, um, to convert other people who are not written about in the account that we know nothing about, variety of reasons. Yeah, I'm just thinking about what you said earlier about Jesus saying, oh, you know, what do you want from me, basically? And I guess if you, in, in the area where Jesus was physically on earth, if you came to him wanting physical healing, that's all you got. Yeah. But if you came like Peter, you know, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Well, then you got to drink from the, from the river of life. Absolutely. And, and, you know, just heeding Jesus' warning. I mean, Jesus gives Pontius Pilate effectively a warning. You know, say, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Pilate, you better listen to me. But he doesn't heed it. So Jesus gives warnings, and that's a picture of the warnings of God, the common grace blessings, but they're not necessarily effectual. Let's talk about Jesus' response to the Pharisees and how he identifies himself with the Father. This is incredible. It is incredible. So we get to an explanation that the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So rather than being in shock, you know, oh, there's a miracle on the Sabbath, now they're persecuting because, hey, you did work on the Sabbath. But Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Mm, mm, so mm. before we talk about Jesus and his relationship with the father, what does this mean that the father's working until now? Because you know, I remember at the end of uh, you know, the seven-day creation, it says God rests. But Jesus says, my father's always working. Yeah, uh, there's so much to talk about here. Let me talk about something that you might not have mentioned, and that is just Jesus' incredible courage at the human level. They are extremely angry at him. And he puts out the fire with kerosene. <laughs> it's like, oh, you, you're asking me about the Sabbath? Actually, my father has worked. He has absolutely zero fear of these folks. And it's just, you know how people are always tempted to lie, get themselves out of a situation? Jesus never did that, ever. And so it's just remarkable how he looks this hatred right in the face and just tells them the truth. And so I just think there's something so clearly admirable about Jesus' commitment to perfect morality, to perfect truth-telling, to courage, to leaving the results to God the Father. I mean, they want to kill him, and he knows it. And yet look how, how he tells the truth. And it's just like, you know, uh, Paul speaks of Jesus giving the, the, the proper confession in front of Pilate. Um, you know, and you get that sense of Jesus' courage in front of all of his accusers. So we'll start there. Secondly, your theological question about, about the Father. Jesus says, my Father is always working to this very day, and I too am working. So this is how I understand it. I understand it this way, that God created in the physics of the universe, in the actual physical universe, a needy universe, a universe that cannot exist apart from him. He did not create an independent universe. He did not sever the tie from himself. But he is perfectly, completely, totally active in sustaining the universe at every instant, every millisecond 
of its existence. So therefore, we have to go back then to the Father's Sabbath rest and understand it differently. It doesn't mean he ceased from all energetic activity and labor toward the universe. Because it says in Colossians that in him, and that includes Jesus, in Christ, through, through uh, the activity of the Father, through the Son, all things hold together. So I think even at the physical nuclear level, the, the, the protons hold together what the physicists call the strong nuclear force. The, that's Jesus, that's God, holding every atom of the, of the uh, material universe together. He holds them together. And I'm going to go over into the non-material world, into the spiritual realm, that God the Father exerts active energy in the spiritual dimensions to keep the angels, the demons, Satan together and existing. So nothing exists at any instant apart from the direct activity of God. Jonathan Edwards went so far as to say, effectively, God is decreeing recreation every instant. That was so far out, the language is so far out that people can't always go with it. But, but you get what he's saying. He's yeah. saying he's so active in holding it together that if he didn't, it would all be it gone. Stop, yeah. Thus he's recreating Right, and it. that's where how far we are from a dualistic universe, that God and Satan are battling it out on roughly equal terms. That is absolutely untrue. If God wanted to pull the plug on Satan's very existence at any moment, he could do it. So he's just using Satan. And he is infinitely above him. He's infinitely above all of, all of um, us. And so Jesus wants... The people to understand how active and energetic the Father is. He's feeding people on the Sabbath. He's healing people on the Sabbath. He's holding the universe together on the Sabbath. He is more active than you can possibly imagine on the Sabbath. And he also says, and I am also working. Yes, it's also an understatement, a vast understatement, because the Father does nothing uh, toward the universe apart from the Son. Colossians 1 again makes it plain that in him all things hold together. And so there is nothing that continues to exist apart from the activity of the Son. Now, in the days of his incarnation, it is just mind-boggling and hard to even comprehend how that's true. Especially, you know, think about it's Christmas time for us now and baby in the manger. Is he holding the universe together? How does that even work? I just, my circuit breaker trips and I'm like, I just don't know. But Jesus is saying in a very mild understatement, I too am working. (laughs) So they understood that he was saying he was equal with God. Yes, because it says in verse eighteen, they were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, it seems to be now a minor uh, infraction based on with this next major infraction, he's calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And that's the doctrine of the Trinity, and and I think we we understand the equality of of the Father and the Son in terms of essential nature. They are essentially uh, of essence, God, you know, very God from very God, as the creed said, or as Philippians 2 said, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or, or did not consider it robbery or something that had to be seized. He already had it. He already had equality with God. And so, yes, that this is the clear, open teaching of the deity of Christ. And so liberals come along and they tell us, you know, the, the idea of Christ as God came in centuries later. It just didn't. Jesus taught it openly. Father-son language is equal in essence. But again, the father-son language is unequal in office. 
and so they have different roles, and so we have to hold those together. But in terms of, of who they are in essential being, they are equally God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's, again, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to try to understand the unity of the Trinity, and that is the mystery. The threeness of the Trinity is not hard for us to understand. Three gods, each doing their own spheres of influence or jurisdictions or different things like that. No, no, no. The doctrine of the Trinity says perfect oneness, and this is one of those statements. I can't do anything on my own. There's, I, can't, I can do nothing. The Son can do nothing on his own. So the on his own or separately or of his own accord, and there's a lot of different translations, but of myself, I do nothing. I'm not independent. Now, here's what we have to understand. Our salvation is being brought from a bizarre, irrational, wicked independence from God back into a complete dependence and submission to the kingly reign of God the Father. That's what our salvation is all about. Jesus is just speaking the language of our salvation. We also, when we are fully glorified, will do nothing of our own accord. We won't be off on our own, doing our own thing, setting up our own planet, or, or having our own agenda. There won't be any our own. We will be truly persons, but totally submitted to the kingly leadership of the Father. And Jesus is modeling that, because here he's speaking as the Son of Man. As the Son of Man, I don't take the initiative. I respond. I respond. The Father doesn't respond to me. I respond to the Father. He shows me what he's doing, and I do it. And so that's the Father, Son, Initiator, Responder, Commander, Obeyer language. Jesus openly says, I obey the Father. The Father doesn't obey the Son. So there you have those different roles, but yet they are equal in essence. So the mystery of the Trinity. But he's saying, I don't, I'm not independent at all. There's nothing independent about me. I do everything in obedience to the command of the Father. And then he says, let me tell you what he's showing me. He's showing me things like no one has ever been shown before. And he's going to show me even greater things. So again, that showing language, the Father goes out ahead of Jesus and maybe in a visionary sense or in his quiet time or whatever, communicates the day's works. And he shows him what he's going to do. And Jesus says, yes, Father, I'll obey. You know, he does that. I mean, he would spend, get up a great while before, before the sunrise. And the Father would communicate in some way the day's works. Or maybe it's just instantaneous communication ahead of time. But he would show him where we're going and what we're doing. And Jesus would say, yes, Lord, I would do it. I will obey you. And so he says, I don't do anything on my own, but I only do the works the Father shows me. And he shows me everything he's doing. So again, he's, the Father isn't holding anything back. He's like, well, I'm not doing something off to the side. No, everything the Father's doing is through the Son. Jesus says he's going to do these works so that, quote, you all marvel. Mm. What is the purpose of the Son of Man coming with a bang, with tons of miracles, mm -hmm. so that the people marvel Yet again, as we've talked about even on this podcast, many don't believe. Yeah. Why do them? Well, I mean, the miracles are essential to saving faith for the elect. I mean, you and I are, we are Christians because of the miracles Jesus did, including the single greatest miracle, which is his own resurrection. And John 10 makes it, very, sorry, Romans 10 makes it very clear that we have to believe that God raised him from the dead in order to be saved. So that's, it's not tangential, it's essential to our salvation. Um, but we get it by reading the account in the Bible. And so the Bible's sufficient for the elect. Uh, the Holy Spirit takes the scripture, illuminates it, and makes it come alive so we know it's true, and we believe in miracles. 
Um, so when he says to your marveling or your amazement, he'll do even greater things in these, and he goes right to talking about resurrection. He talks about um, the resurrection from the dead. Now you could say that he's talking about Lazarus because the Father gives Jesus the power to raise the dead. Um, later in this exact same chapter, though we won't get to it in this podcast, he's going to talk about Jesus raising all the dead, all of them. And perhaps that's when they'll marvel when he sees he is God. He is the second person in the Trinity. And he's in char- he is in charge of the human race because he is the judge of all the earth. And he is the one that raises them up out of their graves, good and evil alike. And he dispenses them to their eternities, to heaven or hell. So there is a majesty to these words that is breathtaking. As he says in verse 23, that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That's incredible. That's making himself equal to God. He deserves to be honored, that is, as God, worshipped, just as everybody worships the Father. And the Father is delighted about this. He gives him these roles to play. He gives him these works to do. But again, you see the submission of the Son. All the things he has that's part of his work and part of his, his honoring, all of it comes from the Father. So it's quite remarkable here. But he says, you will marvel and you'll, amaze, you'll be amazed because he's going to do, the Son of Man is going to do even more amazing things than I've done up to this point. So chief among these amazing things will be the resurrection of the dead. His own resurrection. So he says, uh, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. Mm-hmm. So obviously the really controversial thing that Jesus is saying is that he also gives life. But let's talk about both those. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Right. Please talk about the little known but very real eschatological expectation of the resurrection of the dead based on Old Testament scripture. Sure. There's a lot of verses. Uh, Martha said, I know that Lazarus will rise again at the end of the world. And so Job said, in my flesh I will see God. Um, Isaiah said, your dead will live, their bodies will rise, those who sleep in the dust will come alive. Um, there's, so there's a number of verses that pointed to it. And uh, the, the dry bones coming to life, they're very dry and they are alive. And so it's a clear picture of a mass of people coming up out of the, day, out of the dead. Uh, Book of Daniel, Daniel 12, many who sleep in the dust will, uh, will arise and shine with glory. What Jesus is saying here is, yes, I'm the one that does all that. Right. I raise them. And so you're going to see me do that. In the meantime, we have Lazarus and, and some others that are resuscitated. Um, we could argue, I mean, the, the language here is that Jesus is going to raise other people from the dead. But the Father is going to raise him from the dead. And Jesus is going to raise himself. And he says it openly in John 10. He says, I have the authority to lay down my life and to take it back up again. I can just do that. So he has power of his own life. He's just in charge. He's in charge of life and death. And he gives life to those whom he is pleased to give it, who he, whom he chooses to give it. He is sovereign over life or death. That's quite remarkable. It says the son gives life to whom he will. Mm-hmm. So another one of these uh, Calvinistic verses from John, although... Shouldn't use the language because it's not from John Calvin; it's from Jesus. Jesus himself. He says he gives life to whom he wills. Yeah. What does this teach us about him being the author of salvation? Yeah, no one comes alive apart from the will of the Son. So if you're a Christian now, it's because Jesus willed it. And we can also say if you're a Christian, it's because the Father willed it. And you can say if you're a Christian, it's because the Spirit willed it. Because they all have a will, and their will is in perfect harmony one with another. That's the essence of the oneness of the Trinity. They have the same will, but they are separate persons. So it's a mystery, but Jesus' will 
submissive to the Father's will, is to give life to the elect. The Father chose them before the foundation of the world. The Son dies for them and here gives them life. And we could also say if the Spirit would speak for himself, he would say that 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 Jesus doesn't raise anyone from the dead apart from my activity. So the Spirit, you can't you can't be raised to life apart from the working of the Spirit of God. So I mean Jesus himself says it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. So they are in complete concert here. So he gives life to whom he wills to give it, and that's just his sovereignty and salvation. And in verse twenty two is I think the first time I read it and understood it, I think a jaw dropper. Mm-hmm. He says, "Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has entrusted all judgment to the Son." Mm-hmm. So, talk about Judgment Day, the last day. What what is the Scriptures point to of how it's going to pan out? Yeah, well, this is perfect, complete, absolute delegation from the Father to the Son. And it's not like the father doesn't know what's going on or is going out doing something that day. He's all over it. He just completely trusts his son to do it perfectly. And so he's going to talk about this in other places as well. But uh, his judgment is just and it's perfect because he doesn't seek to please himself but the father. And so the father is completely satisfied in the son. And there is nothing more important, no activity the son could ever do more important than deciding the eternal destinies of human beings. You think about that. I mean, think about what's involved in that. He separates all people. They'll all be gathered by the angels, all of them gathered when the Son of Man comes in his glory. All of the angels will gather every human being that's ever lived, and they'll all be gathered before Jesus, and he will separate them one from another. On what basis? On his own basis. Wow, yes, but his judgment is just. It'll be perfectly just, and it will be perfectly in line and in concert with the will of the Father, but he's the one that's going to do it. And he's going to separate them, and he's going to put the sheep on his right, the elect, and he's going to put the goats on his left, and then he's going to speak to them, and then he's going to dispatch them. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. Come, you who are blessed, and take your, your provision, your inheritance, the kingdom. So he's going to do that. So the Father has totally entrusted all of that um, to the Son. He will. He, you think about that, Pontius Pilate, standing in front of Jesus. Adolf Hitler, standing in front of Jesus. Muhammad, standing in front of Jesus. And then all of their followers, standing in front of Jesus. All of them, everyone, you're going to stand in front of him. I am. We deal with Jesus. He, all judgment. And that's where I, I think about the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus kind of deeply and, and more expansively interprets the law of Moses. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. It's like, well, it's relevant because he's the judge that's sitting on your case. And when he tells you how he defines murder and how he defines adultery, you better listen because he's the judge. If I may, I want to bring in one verse from the next section because Jesus repeats himself, but I think this verse is very relevant. He says that the Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Yeah. So I, I find this very interesting that basically God has entrusted the judgment of the human race to the head of the human race, yeah. Jesus, the, the new Adam, the, the second, the son of man. It's his role. It's his right. And he can look at every human being and say, I know what it's like to be human. I know what it's like to be tempted. I know what it's like to go through physical existence, birth, life, and death. I know what it is to be a perfect man. I am a perfect man. Now here I'm going to evaluate you. And so there it is. So I, and to me it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. And again, that son of man language, uh, which you have the deity and the humanity of Christ. Now, the purpose of all this is so that they honor the Son, 
so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So here, just another verse uh, promoting the, the deity of Christ. The um, you know He's worthy of equal worship with the Father, equal honor with the Father. And then he says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's a harsh word for all other world religions. Absolutely. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking the word honor out and just putting the word worship in here. That all may worship the Son even as they worship the Father. The same worship you give to the Father, you can give to the Son. And this is the exact same person who said to Satan, when Satan wanted Jesus to worship him, he said, depart from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But yet he's the same one saying that all may honor and worship me. So it's just an overt, no doubt about it, claim to deity by Jesus here. And he's saying that the Father's delight in it. Same thing in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no, there's no um, competition here. There's no division. If you worship Jesus, you are worshiping the Father. Just like he later will say to uh, Philip, if, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you worship Jesus, you worship the Father. Conversely, as he says openly here, if you do not worship him or honor him, you do not honor the Father. So you can't bypass Jesus to get to the Father. So here I think about our Jewish friends and uh, un unconverted Jewish friends and neighbors, co-workers. I've had so many Jewish friends in my life. And uh, many of them, as I knew when I was growing up, they did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they were Jewish. And if they were religious, they were seeking to get to the Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, apart from Jesus. Jesus is saying here, you can't do it. It's, it's really hard. You have to read Psalm 2 to see, and other verses, but, or other passages, but to see the fiery passion the Father has for the Son. It's, you can't even measure it. When you, when you see the loyalty that Jesus showed to his Father and his willingness to die in Gethsemane, well, you turn that whole thing around, it's like, now I'm going to tell you, you sit at my right hand, I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You can't ignore the Son. The Father is a raging inferno of zeal for his Son's glory, just as the Son is that for his Father. So there is, there's no separating the Father and the Son. So you can't bypass Jesus to get to the Father. So give us some applications, what to think about this week after listening to these verses. Well, let's just simply go where we just were a moment ago. Let's just worship, worship the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Just worship the triune God. Just see the, the honor that they deserve. Let your mind be elevated in exalted thoughts of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But here the passage zeroes in on Jesus, his activity, his works. So worship him. Like it says in Philippians, we are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So just glory in Christ Jesus. See the greatness and the exaltation of Jesus. See in your mind's eye, Jesus seated at the right hand of Almighty God in glory, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Just worship him. Secondly, imitate him. You know, Jesus doesn't do anything apart from the will of the Father, and he is a pattern for us as human beings that we would be that obedient. Now, we won't. That's perfection. But that's a goal. I want to live my life today that I only speak and act that which the Father wants me to speak and act. I think that's what Jesus wants uh, for us when he is our role model. He gave us an example that we should follow in his steps. What are some tips to ensure that we're not like the man who was healed who then went away and, and betrayed Jesus? Well, I think John 9 would be a good way to be instead. You know, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You know, he said, tell me, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe. And he said, I have seen him, and it is I who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And it's that simple. 
you know, for us then to say, Lord, I believe you healed me, you raised me, you gave me, um, you know, let's spiritualize it all. You gave me spiritual sight, you gave me spiritual strength. I was spiritually paralyzed. Now I'm spiritually alive and spiritually walking with you and I'm spiritually hearing you speak to me and I'm spiritually seeing you act. Praise God. So. Amen. Well, that was episode nine in the book of John. Please join us next time for episode 10 where we discuss John chapter 5, verses 24 through 47, and it's really Jesus continuing this discourse. It's titled, The Scriptures Testify About Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.